This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The liberal government is going to announce a legislation uh, that will have a marijuana be legal in Canada by July 1st, 2018. Remember that they said that they would be announcing legislation by the spring. They didn't necessarily say that it would be implemented. Uh, so what they have done is by this spring, meaning now they have announced or will announce that uh, this will all be uh, finalized, I guess, by July 1st of 2018, not this year. To talk more about all of this, Adam Greenblatt is with us, co-founder of St. Cannabis, Quebec's only medical cannabis clinic, also head of the Quebec Engagement for Tweed, and he is with us now. Hello, Adam. How are you today? Great. Thanks for having me back. Thank you very much for uh, for taking the time to join us. Surprised about this announcement today that this is going to be announced next week, but then will actually be another year before it is all implemented? Uh, no, it's not really a surprising announcement. We've kind of known that this was, uh, I mean, the, the July, spe- the specific of July is is, uh, is fresh, but I mean, this is, uh, the government's been pretty clear on this timeline since the beginning, so it's not really a shock. So uh, you never expected that come uh, this spring that it would be, in fact, legalized? Uh, no, I mean, it's been misreported as such um, rather frequently. But, uh, you know, it's always been under our understanding that uh, the bill would be would be um, proposed in the spring. Um, and then, you know, it's got to work its way through Parliament and the Senate before being passed. And then there's the whole issue of uh, of the provinces and the jurisdictional issues around uh, distribution and, and retail sales. Uh, so, uh, there's still a lot of work to be done. Uh, NDP were saying that uh, they're they're not even sure that they're going to go through with this. Uh, they were debating this the other night uh, because it it has been delayed a bit, or as you mentioned, uh, you know, simply been reported incorrectly. Uh, do you think that there's anything slowing this up or any obstacles in the way that are, could change any of this? Uh, no, I think that it's important to get things right, and that they're you know that they're they're taking their time on it so that they can implement a system that's going to work properly. Um, the NDP did. Um, expressed, I think, some genuine concern about uh, young people who continue to be burdened with criminal records in the meantime for possession, which which is problematic. Um, but uh, but but no, I think I think they're following through on their on their promise. I don't think this is smoke and mirrors. Do you think the uh, local law enforcement should back off doing what they're doing as far as dispensaries and that sort of thing, uh, or is it a case of you know nothing's legal yet and we can't assume what the distribution model is going to be like before it's announced? Yeah, I think it's more that I think uh, it's. I think they're in a tough spot because there is um, there is a bit of a lack of clarity, and there's certainly a, a different approach depending on which jurisdiction you're in. You know, Vancouver uh, takes a bit more of a hands-off approach than Toronto. I mean, Vancouver and Victoria have gone so far as to regulate dispensaries um, proactively beforehand. Uh, whereas uh, it doesn't seem like Toronto's following suit, but uh, I think it'll all be, it'll all get worked out by by next summer. So I think uh, I think patience is a virtue in this, uh, in, this con- in this situation. How difficult would this have been to have had it finalized by uh, this year as opposed to next? Obviously, you guys aren't surprised that it has been bumped back another year. How much more study needs to be done? It's not. I don't think that it's a matter that any. It's not an issue that more study needs to be done. I think it's the it's the practicalities of getting a system in place that's going to work. Uh, we've already got a very uh, robust system in place for medical cannabis. 
Um, on the production side, the production is, you know, seed to sale tracking. We have rigorous quality controls in place. We even have a mail order system that uh, is also, you know, ready to go for a, for an adult use market, uh, especially in the interim while we figure out, you know, what kind of stores it's going to be sold in. So, uh, so yeah, that's... Uh, do you, do you think we will know everything by next July 2018? Will the whole template will be done and bingo, bango, here's how we do it? Yeah, there there may be some lingering issues from some provinces by then, but the, the, certainly the word on the street would be that uh, that this whole thing should be in place by by Canada Day next uh, next year. So, um, boy, that'll be quite a Canada Day. It, we, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the cannabis community has always referred to that day as Cannabis Day, and now we'll have, uh, we may very well have a, a good reason to call it that. Are you surprised that Ottawa is leaving the distribution process up to the provinces? Uh, no, I'm not. I mean, it's already how they do it with, um, with alcohol, for example, so it's not surprising that they, that they would do that. Um, it's it's already like that for alcohol and tobacco, actually. So I think the federal government is going to set a sort of bare minimum, and then the provinces can tweak and adapt it to whatever they see fit. So I think you might see, I, I expect to see a sort of patchwork of different approaches to age limits and distribution uh, across, across the different provinces. Uh, in this day and age, do you think you will see that much difference between how how this is all rolled out between uh, provinces, or do you think we will see something very similar across all all the provinces? No, I think you're going to see a lot of difference. I think you're going to see a patchwork. I think some provinces are more likely to go in the private retail direction, whereas others may opt for uh, something like the LCBO. Uh, it remains it remains to be seen. There are pros and cons to both. Um, uh, methods, but I, I, I would expect to see uh, a difference there, for sure. I so, mean, we already have that with alcohol. We've got, you know, the, the drinking age in Quebec is 18, and you can buy wine and beer in corner stores. Uh, it's not the same deal as in Ontario. Are we most yeah. likely to see, if you have a liberal uh, alcohol program, it's going to be the same thing with uh, with marijuana? In other words, if you've got a privatized element like uh, like other places may have, uh, that they m- would most likely have the same sort of distribution process for marijuana, and if you're sort of like Ontario and it's taken a, a while to get into this sort of thing, that we're going to be have the slowest system in, in the country. Uh, that's certainly a possibility. I mean, like I, I don't, I don't know what uh, what's going to happen in each in each different province, but uh, there are still there. You know, there there are core principles that we need to achieve, no matter how it rolls out. We need safe, trackable distribution. We need to ensure that point-of-sale information can be informative and branded without exposing uh, you know, non-consumers and new users to, to the product. And we need sufficiently trained staff to really help, um, to help cannabis consumers make responsible choices that lead to safe and, and positive experiences. Uh, because Ontario is seems to be pretty behind in this sort of thing, and and you know we're just moving into grocery stores now with, with alcohol. Uh, are we as best equipped to handle this as other provinces who may have already uh, some sort of private model in place? I mean, what what kind of options does Ontario have here if they're you know if they're not well, going to do well, like Ontario's an LCBO? Actually, Ontario's actually hinted at at their um, at their affection for the LCBO model. I don't think it's um, set in stone, but uh, but but some. Uh, I mean, Kathleen Wynne and her team were opining on that a few months back. 
So uh, I'm sure that that's being looked at. Um, but I, I, I couldn't I couldn't tell you. I mean, we we got to see what happens over the next few months. I think the I think the the discourse and the debate is going to move more towards how it should be distributed. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of argument over whether it's a state monopoly or we if, if we allow private retailers to uh, to enter the business. Um, I certainly personally would like to see private retailers be allowed to um, to sell marijuana out of out of their own storefronts, um, assuming that they pay some kind of, you know, licensing fee to a ministry. I don't think that cannabis is uh, dangerous enough to warrant the uh, the overreach of a state monopoly. But um, I also understand that provinces um, may seek sort of the path of least resistance, and if they've already got established liquor boards and that kind of thing, it may it may strike them as a as an easier way to go about it. Uh, it's it seemed like yeah if you're in the, if you're in government then the LCBO model is the way to go but it seemed there's a lot of public backlash against that saying that they shouldn't be selling drugs the same place that they sell alcohol can you see them coming up with a separate model that's very similar to the LCBO yeah yeah I, it's it's hugely problematic to have cannabis sold on the same shelf as alcohol and I I don't think I think that that gets confused in this whole in this in this discussion. I, you know, you could have the liquor board uh, or the Régie d'Alcool, which we have in Quebec. You could have that ministry oversee cannabis retail without putting it on the same shelf as a liquor store. Um, uh, I so think they could would... manage it with a different distribution method. Yeah, the, the B.C. government employees union was actually suggesting that a while back um, where you could have, you know, yeah, you'd have the liquor board the liquor board run the stores or, or regulate the stores, but you wouldn't necessarily have cannabis and, and liquor on the same shelf. I think there's genuine, there's very real public health concerns around uh, around co-sale of, of cannabis and alcohol. Surprised they didn't uh, make a common age limit on this, as opposed to like it varies from province to province on alcohol. Well, that's actually what they're going to do. The Fed, it sounds like the federal government is going to set... Uh, so they are going to set the age. I think the federal government is going to set a, a minimum age, right. and then and then enable the provinces to to set. You know, I mean, I, I would I would expect the federal government to set it at 18. This was what the task force recommended. Mm-hmm. Um, and if if provinces want to set it higher, then they they may opt to do so. Uh, when do you think? Uh, obviously, in the next little while, uh, the federal government is going to announce its plans in the next month or so. When do you think Ontario will announce what it's going to do? I really, I really couldn't tell you, but uh, the sooner the better. <laughs> I think, I think we have to wait. I don't think you'll see any sort of movement in that regard until we, until we get a, a sense of what the legislation is going to look like. Um, so, so I, I don't think that discussion will start um, in detail until we've we've seen the bill and we see what they're proposing. Adam Greenblatt is with his co-founder at Sante Cannabis, Quebec's only medical cannabis clinic and also head of the Quebec Engagement for Tweed. Adam, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The Ontario government has uh, known that the rising costs of electricity was among the major concerns, according to polling done months before they acknowledged it and even offered a solution. 
Uh, let's talk about that and, of course, the NDP leadership uh, debate, which was last night. And I'm sure we can't get away without speaking about Donald Trump, too. Uh, let's bring in Noor Al-Kadri. He is a professor at the Telfer School of Management, University of Ottawa. He is with us now. Hi, Noor. How are you today? I'm doing great, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. All right, Noor, I can't even get started without asking you this first. And I'm, I don't mean to sidetrack you here, but I, I, I honestly could not believe on the weekend when Donald Trump's, or just prior to the weekend, when Donald Trump's health care bill to abolish Obamacare didn't pass with his own majority, and then he started blaming the Democrats for that. To me, I think that isn't that the equivalent of Justin Trudeau not convincing his own party to vote for something and then blaming the conservatives? Uh, absolutely. It's the same. Uh, it's a good analogy. But um, uh, Donald Trump uh, was not the establishment candidate uh, within, the, within the Republican Party. We all know that. And uh, there are lots of uh, people who are uh, within the establishment who hold positions and uh, in the Senate and in the Congress, and uh, they never support Donald Trump. Uh, they're not supportive of his ideas. And uh, Donald Trump won the presidency, and they still can't go over that. Uh, Donald Trump has a lot of work to do in trying to um, uh, do some reconciliation within the um, uh, Republican Party to bring everybody on board before he puts any legislation uh, um, be before the Congress or the Senate. This, this is... Uh, uh, this is the first exercise that he he should do. I mean, uh, the art of the deal for him in um, in business works like like that. But in business, if uh, a deal doesn't work, there's going to be another one. Uh, those are uh, zero sum games for him. Whatever he loses, the others are winning, and they're going to be going uh, going after him. Um, he campaigned a long for a long period against the Obamacare, and to come with uh, this. Uh, Short-sighted proposal, uh, ill-prepared, uh, not whipping this vote, not making sure that it's going to pass and present it uh, was one of the biggest setbacks for Donald Trump. And um, somebody like him will, could never learn. I mean, uh, blaming it on the Democrats <laughs> when they've got the majority at, and everywhere tells you that there are a lot of things like this that are going to pass. Uh, we, we've talked many times that his biggest obstacle is his own personality. Can he turn this around? Can he make friends where he has made so many enemies, considering the, you know, the barbs he's lobbed across that fence? Well, um, he, I would say that uh, it's going to be tough for him. Uh, you can change uh, some new tricks to an old dog. It's um, been in, uh, in business for 70 years, and he is uh, coming into politics thinking that he can do politics exactly the same way that he deal with uh, with business. In business, he was uh, uh, a decision maker uh, for his company. In, in politics, he can't be a decision maker alone. America is based on institutions, and he has to know where his limits are within those institutions. Unless he learns that, He's gonna um, be still in the same uh, the same set of problems, and we're gonna be hearing a, a lot of those bills being an executive orders taken and then be, uh, later refuted. Uh, obviously, uh, lots of confusion, lots of conflict in his first uh, his first few months or weeks, rather, of, of the presidency. But the one positive indicator was that from the moment he was elected, the stock market continued to go up. And it went up and up and up. And, and despite all of these other failures, it appears, 
you know, business was still behind Donald Trump. And now appears in the last week that that's all switched around too. that now business has less confidence in him because he couldn't get the health care bill passed. There um, are various sectors in, um, uh, in the economy that operate uh, in a psychological way. Uh, the stock market went down big time before his election when um, there was a possibility that he's going to be elected. Uh, on the first days of elections, it went down, but later on it started to rebound. And uh, what uh, we see is that those psychological reactions are uh, in a capitalist society where the market drives everything. Um, they don't go by an executive order. Um, uh, definitely, there are some uh, some sectors that are going to be affected. Well, we've seen um, the airline industry, for instance, being affected uh, based on, on his bans because um, it, it went back to business because this had a direct effect on business. Um, there were lots of uh, um, facts that showed that the number of travelers at the United States went down by 6% in, in total. Uh, from some of the countries that he um, has banned, it went down by like 20 percent. So these these are indicators. Definitely, with the healthcare bill, we're going to see um, uh, the, the sectoral aspects of healthcare are going to be affected in business, whether it has to do with with insurance companies or because these are bets. I mean, if it passes, there's going to be opportunity for some businesses, and if it um, goes down and or it uh, loses, and then there's going to be opportunities for others and um, it depends on who has the, the tip in this definitely the insurance industry is, is going to be a big player in uh, in that whole equation and as a major va- variable it's going to affect the, uh, the stock market we're going to see lots of fluctuations that are going to be affected by politics uh, these are things that are going to uh, also be affected when we start in uh, NAFTA negotiations we will we will see lots of uh, aspects affecting uh, this uh, the peso went down big time uh, after um, his talks about the wall, and then we have seen a big rebound uh, on and uh, uh, on Mexican stocks. And so uh, um, it's interesting stuff. But later on, the stability is going to come back to the market. Our- Trump has a limit. All right, let's uh, move on to uh, Ontario politics. Uh, an article in the Canadian Press today, Ontario Liberals' new hydro was the number one concern long before uh, relief had been announced. And they're talking, they're going back to 2013 on some of these, uh, some of these points. Uh, why did the Ontario Liberals keep going despite these sorts of resp- uh, reports, whether it's, it's, it's constituents showing concern, whether it's experts showing concern? Why did they keep going? Do the Liberals really believe in this ide- ideology or do they just believe that it gets them votes? Knowing that Ontarians, this obviously means a lot to. Uh, I think Ontarians take pride in being environmentally con- conscious. Um, is she playing them? Is she using that to her advantage rather than it being an ideology that she's stuck on? Or is it, is it that or is she just convinced this is the way to buy votes? This is the way for, you know, to succeed. One thing that we have to take into account is that uh, Kathleen Wynne won the leadership uh, that was done in a snap way, uh, and she became a premier right away uh, of a minority government. So she wanted to make sure that uh, she can she can govern. So when uh, they had the, the, these types of numbers, she was not elected as a premier uh, by by the public in Ontario. Mm-hmm. So definitely it was in their best uh, interest to just uh, hide this for as long as possible, mainly until after the elections. Uh, 
she she was elected as a premier with a majority government, and definitely there are uh, multiple factors that are put here forward uh, in order to be uh, elected, uh, distancing herself from uh, the Delta McGinty liberals, um, trying to say that now she's she's going to be a different kind of premier, uh, backtracking on some of the policies. But those are some of the things that mainly the um, people in the uh, in the campaign would say. Um, don't talk about this. This is a policy that is going to kill us, and um, we'll uh, we'll hide it until the, after the election. And that's probably this is my analysis of the um, the whole situation that they have postponed uh, announcing and talking about this until it kind of surfaced uh, to the top. When it surfaced. Uh, the problem was exacerbated, was becoming uh, huge. Uh, we um, small patches to the to the solution could uh, could not be a, uh, a remedy. So what uh, they had the eight percent, and then they started to see more more pressure. And then um, we have seen uh, in the first budget what they have uh, done of uh, privatization of uh, Hyde One, and they. Uh, with, uh, with Minister of Finance, Charles Souza. So all of those were, were critical for, for the Liberal Party. They did hide these pieces of information until they got elected, and now they're facing the music. Um, they're going to keep sending more patches and more patches, and with time, people are going are gonna to buy uh, if they got the support. We spoke about this before, that what they're doing is probably they're looking at an electoral map, and they're sending those uh, re- reliefs and checks into some of these areas of electoral maps. So, for instance, looking at rural Ontario and eliminating uh, uh, distribution costs, uh, looking at uh, some uh, uh, low-income people and giving them uh, more reliefs up to 17%. So uh, there might be a, a contingent electorate for them that is important and that they are um, they're not putting a massive solution. They're putting a, a profit solution, like pick and choose what uh, what they want to, to serve. All right, let's move on to federal politics. NDP looking for uh, a new leader, had a debate uh, over the weekend. Is anybody watching? What do they have to do to get people's attention? Uh, I uh, was curious. Uh, I went to the first debate in Ottawa. Um, I went half an hour ahead of time. And to tell you the truth, the room was so packed. They had another uh, room at the Delta Hotel with that was packed, more than a thousand people attending. I, I ended up standing all the time uh, while watching them. So definitely, uh, uh, they they're getting uh, attention. Uh, I would say um, much more than the Conservative Party. Uh, they spoke about policy. So in the first debate, we've seen them unveiling some policy. In the second debate, they moved on to unveil some um, some policy too. Uh, I watched it uh, yesterday on uh, on TV. Um, it was a very good debate. Uh, not only that, uh, they were trying to define themselves, put the stark differences between themselves and the conservatives and the liberals, uh, creating uh, or recreating their uh, their own identity. Oh, a very good thing that is coming from this um, campaign within the NDP leadership is that there are no vicious attacks that, like we see with the Conservative hmm. um, Party. Um, of course, some people criticize in the first debate that they're asking questions that um, about uh, 
your favorite music and your favorite food and all these things. Hmm. But you have to know that most of the candidates, although they are MPs and they're veterans, uh, they are uh, not very well known nationally. And just kind of personalizing things for them and to make them uh, known nationally for somebody who's watching for the first time, uh, it added some fun. Uh, definitely, Charlie Angus is coming um, in with with better French uh, now and uh, some comedy into into the show. Uh, we've seen both uh, um, Guy Caron and Nick Ashton um, coming um, strong in terms of charisma. Uh, of course, in terms of policy, both Guy Caron and uh, uh, Peter Julian. Uh, are putting forward some bold policies, whether it is about uh, basic income or uh, or free education, or so they um, they are setting themselves apart. Uh, I think this is one of the healthiest leadership uh, campaign uh, I've, I've ever seen. Uh, I hope it continues like that, and uh, Canadians and other political parties learn from from that. Wow, that's interesting. Uh, are younger generations moving towards more of a, a social a socialistic government? Is this party attracting millennials? Uh, I believe so because uh, this is what um, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has promised in his campaign, and he got the support of lots of millennials. And uh, I'm, I'm at a university. I speak to people all the time. Uh, millennials, um, students are um, are not happy about um, the way that uh, this government is going, um, and um, they they have liked the rhetoric of Mr. Trudeau going uh, campaigning on the left, but on many issues he didn't um, um, uh, he didn't deliver. On many issues he's gone uh, just like the way like Mr. Harper has um, has done. Uh, so um, I'm, I'm sure that many of those are going to change their minds in the next elections, uh, unless Prime Minister Trudeau does something completely different, and uh, uh, which I don't see given the, um, how things are, are going, whether it is about the deficit, whether it is about uh, um, uh, taxes in general, whether it is about uh, um, electoral reform. Um, all of those are things that uh, the government didn't deliver on and backing down on some of these promises is uh, something that uh, uh, the uh, the millennials are not happy with and they're liking what the NDP leader uh, candidates are proposing uh, whether it is about uh, debt for their student loans whether it is about free uh, education uh, at university level or whether it is about basic income We've seen, obviously, what's happened in the United States. We've seen what ha- what's happened with Brexit in the form of a protest vote. Could we see that happening next federal election and the NDP end up in? Um, it's too early to, um, to talk about this now. Uh, we're still far from a federal election. Uh, I think this question would, uh, would have more uh, um, probably me to chew on when uh, when we have a permanent conservative leader and a permanent uh, NDP leader, and uh, depending on that leader that comes on how uh, what kind of team they they have around them, uh, we will see definitely some uh, some changes along the way. Is this deb- and, and what you saw? You you said you were impressed with the NDP debates. Um, is this doing enough to move them away from the persona of Jack Layton? It seems that once he passed, they just kept using that over and over and over again. Are they now moving forward to another uh, another dimension of this party? Um, in the first debate, we've seen a lot of talk about Jack Layton. In the second debate, we've seen less of that. 
um, uh, I've, what we've seen is that candidates are defining themselves uh, through policy. So when Guy Caron comes and speaks about him being an economist, through his involvement, the policies that he's proposing, or um, definitely uh, uh, Peter Julian talking about his roots way before Jack Layton joining the party when he was 14 years uh, old, uh, they, we are, they are uh, going be, beyond that uh, rhetoric. Uh, definitely, uh, uh, I've seen um, uh, former deputy leader uh, Libby Davis. She's put a, a statement on what she likes to see in the in the NDP leader, and uh, I've seen many uh, of uh, of the candidates kind of taking uh, some lessons from from that uh, paper. And uh, trying to talk about it in their policies, um, of, uh, about up in nominations, about uh, uh, justice and human rights and, and all of these things, uh, they are bringing them forward. And every one of them is trying to define uh, himself as a candidate within the NDP with more progressive policies. Uh, some of the questions also uh, set them apart uh, along with what kind of taxes they would uh, like to cancel, for instance. Each one of them had a focus on one area and unless um uh, this is talk well, we we will uh, and we will see what an ndp government would would do with with these types of uh of taxes and uh and proposals Nor al Qadri has been with us professor at the Telfer School of Management University of Ottawa talking about everything uh ndp leadership uh, debates to uh premier win to even got some trump in there Nor as always thanks for the time and insight much appreciated Thank you for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Is the U.S. winning yet? And, uh, you know, I, I, I was telling Jacob this uh, off air. I'm watching one of the news shows over the weekend because that's the sort of life I lead. And uh, they're talking about uh, President Barack Obama or President Barack Obama, President Donald Trump's uh, Trump care. Uh, that was thrown out by his own party to abolish Obamacare, uh, he couldn't even get his own party to vote for his bill. And then he goes on TV and blames the Democrats, which, you know, if if you want to draw an analogy that we might understand here in Canada, that's like Prime Minister Trudeau with his majority trying to get something through and his own majority Liberal Party votes against it, and then he blames the Conservatives and the NDP for not jumping on board and helping him, and helping him pass it past his own party. That's how bizarre this is. And they went to uh, David Gergen, I believe it is, uh, a, a man who has worked for six presidents of all stripes, and they're asking him his opinion, and he just... He looks like he's just been slapped in the face. He doesn't know what to say. And he, he just basically says the president's delusional. He has a majority. He can't get his own people to support it, so he blames it on the opposition. Where do you go from there? Uh, let's bring in George Breckenridge, who's probably already giggling, retired political science professor at McMaster University. Uh, he is with us now. Hello, George. How are you today? Oh, I'm fine, Scott. 
You know, I certainly don't pretend to be a scholar like you are in this department, but I'm watching this on the weekend, and even as a layman, I'm saying to myself, this can't be happening. I don't (laughs) believe this. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's extraordinary. I mean, um, it's, it's impossible to exaggerate how bad a setback this is for for Trump and and also for um, Paul Ryan, uh, yeah. where, where in Ryan's case it's the first his first serious attempt to pass you know legislation, and they fell flat and they both fell flat in their faces you know, and so um, do Americans. Sorry to interrupt, George, but do Americans get what I got on the weekend? Are they sitting there and shaking their head? Or are they just saying, "Yeah, that's right, yeah." <laughs> No, I think they're shaking their head. I mean, the comparison that, that somebody you made with uh, with uh, Trudeau. I mean, in Canada, we're used to a situation where if, if the government has a majority, like J- Justin does, then there's no he's no difficulty. I mean, the, the par- parties falling apart, majority parties falling apart, is very rare, very rare. So we usually these are a slam wants, dunk. If he wants to do it, but the American system is much more complicated. Mm-hmm. The legislative process is genuinely very complicated. And what, what Ryan was trying to do, I mean, you know, as you know, they promised they would repeal Obamacare, and then it was repeal and replace Obamacare and for, for years and years and years, and uh, ever since it went into effect seven years ago. And so what Ryan, Ryan, was, Ryan has been built up over the years by the Republicans as this policy genius, you know, the, the policy guru of the Republicans. But he was pushed into the speakership against, you know, against his inclination when, when poor old John Boehner was forced out by the divisions in the party. And the assumption was that, that Ryan was somebody who could really reunite the party. And they also assumed, you see, when Trump was, was elected, that Trump could also unite the party, you know, reunite the Republicans. But, of course, neither of these things is true. Uh, Ryan failed just as badly as Boehner had failed, and Trump was complete. although he put in a lot of effort towards the end, you know, inviting them to the White House and threatening them and stroking them, (laughs) the things that presidents often do in these situations, it didn't work. Well, the only difference here, George, is normally they massage and stroke everybody, but they don't spend, you know, the the six months prior to that insulting them into the ground. Maybe that was the difference here. Well, yeah, that's part of it. Yeah, that's part of it. So is Ryan's time up? Where does this leave Paul Ryan? Well, no, I mean, you know, nobody's time probably isn't up because nobody wants the job. They can see how difficult it is. (laughs) You know, that's really, somebody joked on television, nobody wants to be Henry VIII its next wife. Yeah. You know, there's no future. <laughs> so Ryan will have to struggle on and maybe maybe he'll he's probably capable of learning from it. I mean, he was he was too clever by half. What he was knowing that it would be difficult. What he decided to do, they drew up a bill in in private and then tried to force it through as quickly as possible. But it is but this was the strategy, but immediate once it was clear that the what they call the freedom caucus, you know, the far the right. hard right people wouldn't go along with this. See, the idea was simply to pass it in the House, pass something, anything in the House, yeah. and dump the whole thing on the Senate. Well, like the travel ban, just get it done. Yeah, yeah but they were gonna, then, they, then they would dump the whole thing in the Senate, where, where the whole process would be way more complicated and much slower, and, and a very different product would, would, might, might emerge. They just, the House just wanted to be able to say they had passed a repeal, you know, and that was it. <laughs> so he was trying to do it almost secretively, and of course it fell apart. He couldn't hold it together, and Trump was no help. In spite of all his effort, I mean, part of the problem with Trump is 
that he doesn't he doesn't know or care about what's in the bill. He obviously the Republicans said he didn't know he had no idea what was in the bill. But this is supposed to be his strength, George. Yeah. He's the art of the deal. He's the deal exactly. maker. The fact that he exactly. couldn't get this done, what does that say? Well, it, it's a huge setback. I mean, it takes away a lot of his a lot of his mystique, so to speak. You know, that the art of the deal. He could he could this master negotiator who could get anything. It takes it away, and and so that has real consequences for whatever they try to do next. What about the? We, we've heard critics say, you know, the Republicans have been working on this apparently for seven years. Why yeah, didn't well, Why didn't well, they have something ready? Well, that's right. I mean, and Trump, you know, claimed that he had a plan as well, and he didn't. He didn't have anything, you know. And and part of the diff well, but the difficulty that the Republicans have had in getting uh, a replacement, you know, they were going to repeal, and then they realized they would have to, re- they couldn't just yank, you know, 24 million people's health care away. They had to replace it in some fashion. But the reason they couldn't do it is because exactly what we saw with the vote, because the party is hopelessly divided. You go on the Freedom Caucus doesn't want the government to have, to have anything to do with health care. They don't care how many people's health care they take away on, on principle, because the government simply shouldn't be involved. Whereas the bulk of Republicans, even a lot of conservative Republicans, know that once you've given people you know, health care, you can't take it away without consequences. And so they had to try and find another way to do it. And that's when the whole thing collapsed, because there probably isn't, there probably isn't another way. So where does this leave health care in the United States? Well, it's interesting. The, the, I thought that the, the most sensible comment on the whole situation came from Charles Krauthammer. Now, Krauthammer is a very conservative, long-time columnist in the Washington Post. So he's very conservative. Mm-hmm. And he said, this is a philosophical victory for Obama. He oh. said, this country has changed, and now most people think health care is a right. Yeah. And I think he's exactly right on that. The, the, the whole climate has changed. By Obamacare has changed the whole climate by expanding the, the number of people who got health care through subsidies and various things. You just simply can't take it away. And so they're, they're inching painfully closer, a lot of people think, to the only solution to their problem. I mean, they want everybody to be covered and they want it to be cheaper. Well, the only possible way you can do that, everybody knows, is that is by having what they call a single payer system, which is something like ours. Yeah, that's the only way. And so they're they're painfully being dragged, kicking and kicking and screaming towards. It's not going to happen under the Republican or under Trump, I don't think. Towards acknowledging that reality. That's the only way you can do it. You have a single-payer system for most people, and, and the rich people can still have their private insurance. So why didn't uh, the Freedom Caucus or the extreme uh, conservative uh, fragment of this party see this coming, see that, you know, you can't pull things away from people once you've already given it to them? Why yeah, didn't why, why didn't why didn't they just support Trump? Just well, to... because they, they mostly are in, there's about three dozen of them or so, the real hardliners, and uh, who just, as I say, just don't think the government should have anything to do with this. So they want to get government out of this as much as possible. They come from pretty safe districts. Uh, you know, they're mostly from very Republican districts, you know, in, in suburbs and in the South and places like that. So they don't feel they're in any danger 
of being, you know, right. primaried within their own party or being defeated, certainly not be defeated by the other party. Whereas a lot of the other Republicans, particularly those on the, who were being called the moderates, and there are not many of them left, but there was maybe about a dozen or 15, they're elected in states like New York and New Jersey and Pennsylvania, and they have a struggle to get elected. And these are basically democratic states in a lot of ways. And so they know. And, and, of course, you know, the other thing we saw on television over the last several weeks is all these crowds you know, showing up at their town halls and mm-hmm. besieging their offices and things like that. So these, these the moderates know very well that you can't take this away from people. And so they were balking as well, because what, what Ryan ended up doing is, is, is in order to try and placate the freedom people, Freedom Caucus, adding more, you know, stripping more things away that the moderates badly want to keep, like a lot of the regulations on the insurance companies. And, uh, you know, you can't deny people insurance because of a pre-existing condition. He wanted to take that out. And at that point, the moderates said, well, you know, we can't, we can't possibly vote for this. And so they were caught, he was caught on both ends. And, um, and you know, Trump, uh, who has such a short attention span, Says that's it. You know, we're not, I'm not trying again. You know, that's it. It's over. So, the great central promise that Republicans have been campaigning on for seven years, you know, repeal and replace, um, has come to nothing apparently. So, uh, apparently, under the Trump uh, administration, we have Obamacare. Then, well, that's right. It stays in place. You see, that's right. And the Republicans, of course, claim that the whole thing is going to implode. That was the other thing. He said it was going to explode, and then after it was over, he would come in and pick up the pieces and make something even better. What are the chances of that happening? Well, well, well. You see, it, it is theoretically possible. What the Democrats have been saying is, we know it's Obamacare is not perfect, but we 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 want to maintain the essentials of it, and there may be some ways we can tweak it to improve it. And so, in principle, you could imagine Trump working with them, which he's talked about occasionally. But, of course, you've still got Republican majorities. And how many you would still need some of the Republicans to go along with that. Can he ride the fence between two parties? <laughs> well, you know, he, he, Obama does not have a lot of, sorry, not Obama, I mean, Trump does not have a lot of fixed ideas at all. He's not yeah. really a Republican. He's not really a, a consistent conservative. So he, you know, he has very few really clear ideological ideas about policy, and he has, knows nothing about the details. Um, so he said some things like, um, you know, I want everybody to have health insurance. Okay, the Democrats will support that. They want they want that too. Um, we want to build a lot of infrastructure, which badly needs building. The Democrats are in favor of that. The Republicans have been opposed to it. So a number of the things he campaigned on, the Democrats could support, potentially support. But you've still got, he's still got Republican majorities in both houses. Really? And, so actually you know, he's so hoping... You need, you, need a, you need a big chunk of the Republicans to buy into that. So he's actually hoping that in the end this all becomes a Democratic majority, then he'll be able to pass something, I guess. Well, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> maybe so. After, after uh, maybe he'll get another shot at the whole thing after 19, uh, 2018. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> so obviously uh, the first day when this first happened, he was, he was blaming it on the Democrats. Yeah. Then the next day he started to blame more conservatives. Caucus, that's right. Yeah. So how how does he navigate this? How does he turn this ship around? How does he how does he make friends? It's very difficult to see. I mean he, what he needs presumably is 
an issue which would be more, it would be easier to unite Republicans. And so the next thing they say they want to do is to, to overhaul the tax code, which Republicans are all in favor of, you know, slashing taxes. But uh, the problem is also that they, all, but they, all, but the other, the restraint on that is that they want to be able to say it's net revenue neutral; it's not adding to the deficit. And so again, you've got to square the circle again on, on this on tax policy. Well, the Republicans probably would start off more united in principle. The details, you know, the devil is in the, very much in the details on tax policy. So that's not going to be that easy. And then if he wants to do a lot of infrastructure, which the Democrats support. But the Republicans don't really support that, and um, you know, I just so it's different. And, and the other interesting thing is coming down the pike, you know, a little bit further along is by the end of April, the government runs out of money again. All right, yeah. Because they just, they just boosted, you know, they just punted it forward mm-hmm. in last at the end of last year, and um, so they have to. There has to be some kind of budget agreement between the two, and it has to be between the two parties. Otherwise, it won't pass in the Senate. And and also, somewhere more likely in the summer, they have to raise the debt ceiling. <laughs> and so the Republicans who have been the party of no, because as long as they were in the opposition, or at least as long as they were the Democratic president, um, now have all the responsibility for doing these things they don't want to do, you know? Uh, no matter what you thought of Donald Trump or his policies, uh, once he became elected, yeah. it, it certainly appeared as if the stock market was heading north, yeah. and 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 that was one of the only real things he could he could really boast about that yeah, that seemed right. that seemed to be factual anyway. Yeah. Um, but obviously, in the last week, that's gone south as now business is wondering if he can't get health care passed with a majority, how is he going to get tax reform passed or or infrastructure or anything like that? That's right. Exactly. See, that's that's. Why it's such an such a, an important defeat because it raises exactly that question: If he can't do this, what can he do? You know, what can he do? And so they were they've been banking that there would be a lot of tax changes, tax cuts on business, and a lot of infrastructure spending, and that would be good for the economy. But now it's not so clear that that could happen. Can he just let the whole healthcare file sit in limbo like this? Can he just say, "Oh, well, it didn't work. Let's move on to tax." Well, it's difficult to know. I mean, that's his initial response, and you can understand that. And Ryan may feel a bit like that as well. You know, I tried my best. I tried to be tricky and push this through quickly, and it didn't work. And the only alternative, you see, with the Obamacare, I mean, it took them months and months and months. And they consulted everybody. They consulted the insurance people. They consulted the hospitals. They consulted. They tried to bring, build a coalition around Obamacare even although they had majorities in the Congress, in both houses at that, at that point. Um, so the, the only way to tackle it is to do exactly that, to reach some kind of, you have to reach some kind of compromise, where the, the and it's clear now that the essence, of the, you know, the, the fundamental elements of Obamacare will have to stay. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe they can rejig it a little bit to make it look more, uh, more sort of free market or more competition or things like that. But the essentials would clearly have to stay. And um, I don't 
there's no will to do that to even begin that process at the, at the beginning. Is there a crisis coming up? Is there a crisis looming? Because they were alluding that no insurance companies are able to cover this. That no, in certain I, states, most, there's no insurance to even cover well, they've, it. They've been saying it's imploding and everything. Um, and that they always said that it would. It would fall of its own weight, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Most of the more uh, independent analyses don't say that. You know, they say there are problems, particularly in some areas, where there's not as much competition they had hoped for, and not enough young people are buying in, in spite of the fact that they have to pay a tax if they don't buy if they don't buy insurance. So, but but then nobody thinks it's going to collapse, and so it needs to be improved, but it's not going to collapse, and so. And so it looks like, as far as we can see, it'll just carry on the way it's doing. Hmm. How does everyone feel in both camps now that this vote has the result that it has? How, how do the Republicans feel, both uh, the moderates and the Freedom Caucus? How do the Democrats feel now that this has done what it's done? Well, <laughs> I'm sure the Democrats are still partying. but well, That's right, exactly. They're trying hard not to gloat too publicly, I think. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, one of the weird things about it is you, normally the way the American system works is because you have elections every two years for a big chunk of the Congress, um, the, it's, it's, the, it's the odd number of years where you have a chance to get something done. Lyndon Johnson used to say you've got one year, and then they're worried about their re-election. They're already worrying about their re-election. He's only been there for 50, 60 days or something like that. And so the Republicans are getting very apprehensive. On the one hand, you see, that they have not done part of the um, frustration uh, of the people who voted for Trump was that the Republicans were in Congress saying they were going to do all these things, and they didn't do them. They didn't get anything done. So, so, they're, they're, so they're susceptible to that kind of anger on the right. Mm. And uh, at the same time, they're susceptible to, to anger on the, in the middle, uh, people who are still worried that they're going to take away the health care. So how do the Republicans who, who, who basically didn't want this, how are they feeling now? Are they feeling that this is a success? Are they happy about this loss? I think so, yeah. I think the moderates are, because the, the bill, it was really a terrible bill. It was a very bad bill. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it wasn't going to be the final product anyway. It was just a way of getting it out of the House. They say they had voted on it, on, on it and tried to do this, dump the whole thing in the Senate, and then wait and see what, if anything, emerged from the Senate. Because then the House would have to repass whatever emerged from the Senate. You know, so it was really only the first step and the first hurdle, if you like, and they just fell flat in their faces. So the moderates, on the one hand, would be glad that the bill didn't go through. But on the other hand, they're going to remain pretty apprehensive that, that the, the, the sense that Republicans wanted to take away health care for so many millions of people you know, it's, it's, it's not good for other moderate Republicans. So does Donald Trump really have a choice here? I mean, he has to soften it, doesn't he? He has to soften his stance and how he deals with these people. He's well, got to curb his personality. Yeah, it, it, the difficulty with Trump is to say he doesn't know the details. Yeah. He's not a detail man in the slightest. <laughs> no. And so you would need somebody who was much more policy uh, you know, primed on policy to be able to realize exactly how, if you know, if he really wanted, wanted to do this, if this was really a high priority for him, and it's not clear that it is for him, um, he would really have, he would have a much better sense as to where the, where a possible coalition might be. 
But it's not even clear that, see, this was not one of the issues he really campaigned on. He simply picked up the Republican mantra, you know, we've got to repeal Obamacare. But mm. he wasn't really campaigning on that originally. It was much more on immigration and jobs and stuff like that. So it's not even clear he cares all that much about, about health care. You got to wonder at what point he just throws his arms in the air and said I, and says I don't need this stuff. I'm out. I'm going to I'm going to one of my golf courses. <laughs> well, he's, he's being on his golf courses quite a lot. <laughs> Man, George Breckenridge has been with us, retired political science professor, McMaster University, talking about all things Trump and uh, his recent failed health care plan. George, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Well, it's a pleasure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML.